Guys, I want to start with a story. I know I did this last time, but I enjoy it. Um, I want to tell you a story about my grandfather. My grandfather, Ronald Emmanuel Davis. Ronald Emmanuel Davis is one of the most resilient people I've ever known in my life. He survived four strokes. He lived alone and unassisted until his early 80s and was still driving at 83. Um, my grandfather was also a really avid gardener. And as a preteen, I used to watch him um, lighting fires under the trees in his garden to smoke the aphids off of the tree. I used to watch him prune the raspberry bushes, but also leave fruit out for the birds in the autumn. And I even watched him go as far as to take the grass clippings that he would have from mowing his lawn and put them into a specific place so that the bees that would burrow in the spring would have somewhere to build their nests and fertilize his garden. So... <laughs> When my grandfather lost his wife of 50 years unexpectedly, I saw a shift in him. He started to consider his own mortality. And I remember that summer coming back from his home with my mom and she said this, um, the, state of my the state of my father's garden is the state of my father's mind. And what had happened was that summer, there were no grass clippings for the bees. There was no fruit for the birds. There was no pruning of the raspberry bushes. There was just silence. And we started to perceive that my grandfather was neglecting his garden. So 12 years later, when my mother had a brain hemorrhage that nearly took her life, and uh, she was left permanently disabled by that, I saw my grandfather take another turn. Um, sorry, I just need to go to my notes. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So guys, today, um, I just want to argue two points, because I think we've all felt pain in our lives. The first thing that I want to argue very confidently is that suffering is bad. But the second thing that I want to say is that in some cases, suffering is good. Not only is it good, but it's God-ordained. I want to say firstly and foremostly that God does not waste our pain. God does not take joy in the shedding of our tears. And I want to be very careful of the posture that I adopt in sharing this message this morning because I feel that the Lord's laid it on my heart, but I also recognize that it's a lot more poignant for some of us right now than it is for others. So I want to start with Hebrews 12. Sorry, JD, come on. In. Hebrews 12, verses 6 to 7 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Guys, the word son here is very significant because it suggests that there is an inheritance. We're not saying this to discriminate from women. Women, men are all considered as children of God and there is an inheritance of righteousness that the Father wants to give to you. But when we see that word discipline, you can go to the next slide. Sometimes we get that confused. We misinterpret discipline for punishment. But the word used in the original Greek here in, in Hebrews is peduo, which means to educate and to train. When we think of punishment, the root of the word punishment is the word panea in the original Latin, which means to penalize, to hold back, to set penalty. But the word discipline means to give instruction that will allow you to move forward. A punishment holds back, discipline moves you forward. Does that make sense? So we may look at our lives, our pain, and our circumstances and said, in the words of Naomi, call me Mara, for you have dealt with me bitterly, Lord. But God is not dealing with us bitterly. He's not allowing us to suffer in vain. It's because there is a plan and a purpose and a form of discipline that he wants to allow us to develop in our own lives so that we can manifest the fruitfulness that he wants us to show. 
and ultimately be worthy of the inheritance that he wants to give to us. Does that make sense? Awesome. So I want to go to 1 John 2 verse 2 because I want to just further theologize what we mean when we talk about punishment. This word here, propitiation, has anyone heard that word before? What that means is that Jesus is sufficient propitiation to satisfy the wrath of a loving God. If we go to the Greek, we'll see the word hilasmos. Propitiation means hilasmos, the noun meaning that Jesus is an atoning sacrifice. So when we feel negative circumstances in this present time, it is not punishment because the punishment has been exacted upon the Son on our behalf. The verb, hilaskomai, his sacrifice satisfies the divine wrath of God. Take encouragement from this church that when we experience a negative circumstance as sons and daughters of the living God, it is not him exacting his wrath upon us. It may feel painful. We may not know the purpose of the pain, but we can be assured that there is purpose in that pain. So it can feel like a cycle of repetition, right? We've all felt these sorts of things in our lives. We go from anguish to breakthrough to joy to uncertainty to anguish to pain to breakthrough to joy. Guys, it might feel like you're moving like circles in the wilderness, but it's actually, whilst it's a circular motion, that's not what's happening. You're actually more like ascending up a staircase. You're going in circles, but you're moving to a new level. When you return to a season of hardship, you are equipped with more than you had in the past season. And that will cause you to manifest a trustworthiness for what God wants to give to you. It qualifies you for the season that you move into. It gives you experience and maturity. As community group leaders, Jade and I, no secret, over the last four years, we have gone through hardship. We've gone through financial uncertainty. We've gone through uncertainty for our future. Difficulty in business, too little business, too much business, no business, all business. It's difficult. But we have a sense of qualification so that when people come to us with hardship in our community group, we don't speak from sympathy, but from empathy. Because we've been there. So the Lord has prepared us to wait with others to see what he wants to do in their lives. Does that make sense? I was at Trevor's Bry, oh, sorry, barbecue. A couple of, <laughs> I was at Trevor's barbecue. <laughs> I was at Trevor's barbecue a couple of weeks ago. And there was a moment of stillness where the fathers, Denzel, Ryan, Wade, were talking about the uncertainty of seeing your wife go through the pain of childbirth. <laughs> and men, I don't know how we do it. <laughs> I know it's a bad joke, but it's true. It's true. We don't live our lives in isolation from negative experience. But we also understand that on the other side of that perseverance is joy, blessing, and newness of life. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it, would we? And I think the greatest example of this is the life of David, who goes through cycles of joy and anguish. And I'm just going to go through a very, very, very quick synopsis of his entire life. Is that okay? Okay, let's go. I'm going to say this very quickly. In the life of David, there are cycles of triumph and anguish. Number one, David is born, triumph. David is the shepherd boy, cast out from amongst his brothers, anguish. Samuel says that the one who God has chosen is not here, and David is brought in from the fields, triumph. Samuel anoints David as the next king of Israel, triumph. David goes back to being despised and cast away by his brothers, anguish. David stands on the banks, looking upon Goliath, and his older brother Eliab says, why are you here? You've, you've, you've left the sheep, you've, you've abandoned your responsibility, and I can see that there is evil in your heart. So he faces accuse, um, accusal from his own brother, which is anguish. Yet David defeats Goliath, triumph. 
David is invited into the courts of Saul and given Michal as a wife. Triumph. Then David throws a javelin at the, no, Saul throws a javelin at David whilst he plays the lyre to, to, to calm his um, troubled spirit. Anguish. Then we see that Saul pursues David into the wilderness. David spares his life twice, but Saul still sets his face against him. Triumph and anguish. David is in the cave of Adullam, wondering how he got into this situation, although he's been anointed as the king of Israel. Anguish. David becomes the king of Israel. Triumph. David sees Bathsheba, de desiring the wife of Uriah. He sends Uriah into the heat of the battle, and he dies, seeming triumph. Yet the child that Bathsheba and David would have would not survive its infancy. Anguish of the greatest degree. The second child that Bathsheba and David would have would become Solomon, the king of Israel. Redemption and triumph. Yet David's kingship was not over and he would have to quell the rebellion of his son Absalom. Anguish. Absalom is killed in his rebellion and pinned to a tree by javelins. Anguish. And then God says to David, because of the blood on your hands from your conquest, you cannot be the one who builds my temple. Anguish. But yet, David, in his desire to serve and please God, sets aside materials so that Solomon has an adequate foundation to complete the work of building the temple. Triumph. And you know, in the midst of all this, in Psalms 27, verse 13 to 14, David says this, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And that can feel like a declaration, but it's also a reminder. David has gone through different seasons of triumph and suffering, but he reminds himself in the scripture that actually, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I will see the goodness of his hand in this mortal coil before I pass on into eternity. That's the encouragement that you and I need to take today. I don't know what season you're in. I don't know what difficulty you're facing, but you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You will see fruit cultivated out of this season because it is the purpose that the Lord has exacted for you. He is disciplining you so that he can throw you forward into new purposes. Will you receive that? So, to close, to close, I want to go back to the picture of my grandfather's garden. Because I was still a preteen at this time, 11, 12, and I thought I'm going to do the Maury Povich thing and be the intervention. I'm going to sit down with my grandfather now that I have my bus ticket, and I'm going to sit across the table and say, Granddad, why are you neglecting your garden? Why are you not pouring out the clippings uh, for, the, for the bees this year? Why are you not putting out the trellises for the strawberries in autumn? And he said to me, son, I haven't neglected my garden. I'm following my ground. What that means is that I am taking the time to pause, to rest, to feel this anguish and this difficulty that I'm feeling. But I'm also allowing time for my garden to rejuvenate. Church, in the season that you may find yourself where you feel pain, discomfort, and anguish, God has not neglected you. God has not paused his purpose on you. He's allowing something to take place. There's a rejuvenation that's happening in your soil. You may not feel it, you may not know it, but I promise you, you will manifest it in the season that you need to. Is that fair? So, two scriptures and we're done. I promise, two scriptures and we're done.
quick picture. 13 seconds. <laughs> My grandfather had a tree in his garden that grew pears and apples out of the same tree, and I didn't know this was possible until I looked it up, and it's called grafting. You can take a thing that it is, put it into the root of something else, and it will inherit the fruit of the thing that it is, as well as the fruit of the thing that it is rooted into. Are you following me? In Romans 11, verse 17, I've skipped over 828, I'm sorry. It says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Paul is talking about us as the church being rooted into the root of Israel, God's chosen people. But then Romans 9, 8 says that, that we, the children of promise, are the one who God counts as his offspring. So what that tells us is that there's a plan that is much greater than anything that you and I can discern or understand. So the, the, the statement of faith for us is to trust that God knows what he's doing. I think that's my time. So I have to close. Thank you. Thank you.